Well, good morning. It is good to have you here in the room. Those of you online, thank you for joining us, as well as our Skagit campus and everywhere in between. I'm very excited for you to be here today as we have a, a wonderful uh, speaker uh, to preach to us this morning. Not a guest speaker, someone from, uh, from our church here at Cornwall Church. Uh, Cynthia Cavanaugh is our small groups director. She's been on our staff for a year or better. And uh, she is a, a published author. She's an editor. She's an international speaker. Not a stranger to many of you. Uh, she's uh, spoken at our women's uh, sisterhood retreat. And, uh, and, and our <laughs> I wasn't there. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and you are in for a really uh, a great, great message as she shares from Exodus chapter 14. Would you welcome, for the first time preaching here, Cynthia Cavanaugh. a pause there. <laughs> Take a breath. So good to be here. I'm so excited to bring you the word today, and it's such an honor to be invited to, to teach here, and I'm, I'm just so, I just love Cornwall. I mean, I, I know that might sound like, I don't know, you know, I'm supposed to say that, but it's true. The long history of how I got here, I'm not going to share that today with you, but it's just such a joy to serve on the staff here and to be your small group director and other things that go along with that. And so if there's any way I can serve you as my time here um, on staff, I would love to have coffee with you at some time. But honestly, I just it's a privilege and an honor to be with you today. So before we start, I'm going to pray because I always need prayer before I teach. So God, I just thank you so much for who you are just, you are so good to us in so many ways. And Lord, it's a gorgeous weekend this weekend, but we are so glad to be in your house today. And so Lord, we just ask as we open your word that your Holy Spirit would reveal your truth to us. And God, as Jeremiah prayed, Lord, that your words would be in my mouth. And just, so we just love you today, Lord, and we thank you for who you are. And we ask this in your name, amen. When I was a little girl, oh, about 10 or 11 or so, um, my grandparents lived in an apartment in downtown Edmonds. And if you know where that is, it's a little waterfront community. Lots of retired people live there um, north of Seattle. And uh, my, my grandparents have a, just a wonderful story. Uh, they were immigrants in 1950. They came from war-torn Europe, Ukraine. They'd seen all kinds of things. And so they had the, they lived on the fourth floor of their apartment building, and of course there's an elevator, right? And so one day my grandmother was taking her groceries home with her, and she got in the elevator like she always does. And you know, have you ever been in an elevator elevator when it kind of goes kachunk like that? <laughs> well, it went kachunk, and it stayed there. So here was my sweet little Ukrainian grandmother with her groceries stuck in the elevator, terrified, I'm sure. She'd lived through World War II. She'd been in a refugee camp. She had done all kinds of things. God seen God's favor in her life, but she was never more terrified, she said, than being stuck in that elevator. And she had to wait a couple of hours, I believe it was, as she retold the story. Now, my grandmother... It was a really sweet woman, quiet woman, a woman of few words. I'm a woman of lots of words. <laughs> so anyway, she told us the story quite in detail of how these firemen had to come in 
and, you know, hoist her up. She had a dress on. She was embarrassed about that and tried to get her up through the, the ceiling of this elevator through the little trap door, and it was quite traumatic for her. But, you know, this story, you know, of being stuck or the idea of being stuck reminds me of a group of people in the Old Testament, our good friends, the children of Israel, where they found themselves in chapter 14 of Exodus with their backs up against a wall, stuck, facing the Red Sea. And I want to take you to this story. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Exodus 14. But before we do, and while you're turning to your Bibles, I want to give you just a little bit of a backstory of how the Israelites actually ended up in Egypt, where then they were escaping from Egypt and going towards the Red Sea. So we know the story in Genesis of Jacob and his 12 sons, and Joseph being one of them was a favored son. And he got in all kinds of trouble because he was telling his brothers about this wonderful dreams he had where he would they would be bowing down to him. Well, anyway, they were jealous from the get-go, so they decided to, to get rid of him. They threw him in a pit, hoping he would die there. One of his brothers came back and said, we don't want to kill him, so they got him out of the pit, and they actually sold him to a caravan that was headed down to Egypt, and he was sold into slavery. Well, years passed. He kind of moved his way up and ended up at the right hand of Pharaoh, second in command, and oversaw what was happening in the region, a great famine. And because of that, he brought his brothers and his father back to Egypt, and that's where they ended up settling, and that's where they multiplied and populated. Well, then Pharaoh died. That Pharaoh who knew Joseph died, and so he, what, what Joseph, that Pharaoh didn't know the story, so he decided these, all these people were going to enslave them. So they became slaves, and they were slaves for generations. Well, then we know the story of Moses being called by the burning bush to be the great deliverer. And so Moses is the one that approaches Pharaoh many, many times to try to get him to release the Israelites, and Pharaoh was reluctant. So we know then further on, because Pharaoh's reluctant, there, the 10 plagues happen. And Pharaoh keeps changing his mind. Yes, they can go. No, they can go. I mean, he changed his mind as often as he changed his clothes. You know, yes, you can go. No, you can go. Till finally, the last plague we know is when the angel of death came and claimed all the firstborn children of the Egyptians and their livestock. And the Hebrew children, if they had put the blood on the doorpost, they know the angel of death would pass by their home. So here's where we find the Israelites now. They have finally been allowed to leave, and they're headed into the wilderness. And, you know, Pharaoh might have said something like this in today's language. He might have said, oh, snap, what was I thinking? Why did I let them go? What was wrong with me? We need these people. So he amassed his army and then went after them. So we read in chapter 14, verses 10 to 14, and it says, As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. 
Now, you can kind of understand their response because they were comfortable in their slavery to, to some degree, and they had this pharaohs coming after them, and they were terrified. You could say that the Israelites found themselves their back up against a wall. They were stuck. They weren't exactly stuck in an elevator like my grandmother, but they were stuck. Now, I live by the beach, and I love it there, and I would love to be stuck by the beach. I live up um, near Blaine in uh, Birch Bay area, but I choose to live there. I don't have anybody coming after me and chasing me. It's a choice. I love it there. But here's what we know what happened from God's point of view is that he did what he does best, is he performed that miracle for the children of Israel, and we know the story, they crossed through on dry ground. When I was a kid, the first time we had a color TV in our house, I know I'm dating myself, we didn't get one for a long time, I watched the Ten Commandments. So I was in awe of the blood and the Nile and the plagues and Moses opening up the Red Sea in full living color. So we have a kind of a visual. But what I want to do this morning is I want to make a few observations here, and then I want to give us three steps of how you and I can get unstuck when we find ourselves facing a Red Sea in our lives. And first of all, I'm going to use, uh, I love word alliteration, so I'm going to use an acrostic using the word stuck to kind of give us an idea of how the Israelites might have been feeling and what was happening to them. So first of all, they were scared. And it says in verse 10 that they were actually more than scared. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. And you know, when we are stuck, it can be terrifying because we don't know how to move. We don't know what to do next. The situation might seem impossible. The second thing was that their trust was shaken. They had seen these miracles in Egypt, and they had seen what had happened and the plagues, even the angel of death passing by their doors. But, their tr but Scripture says that actually when they passed through on dry ground, that it was night. You know, I never knew that before. Many, many times I've read this story, but it actually happened at night. So they, as they were probably approaching the Red Sea, it was dusk or whatever, getting night. So their sight would have been limited. Yes, they could see and hear a little bit. They could hear more than they could see, but that would have been terrifying in and of itself, right? When we're faced with a hard situation in our life and we're going through a hard time, it can be like St. John of the Cross says, the dark night of the soul. And everything seems heightened in the dark. Doesn't everything seem heightened? And it seems like the darkness, everything looms larger than life. How many of you, when you were kids, actually were afraid of a monster in your closet at night? Okay, I see some hands here. So true, right? I have a vivid imagination. And so I, during the day, I didn't care if the closet was open as a kid. But at night... If that closet was left open for any reason, or I even thought the monster could come through that door, I should have, I wish they would have had Monster Zinc, that movie, when I was a kid, because that would have maybe given me some reassurance that I was just a big, hairy, sully blue guy, you know, that would pick me up and give me a hug. But no, I had such a vivid imagination that I could imagine that monster coming closer. And I would actually thought I saw him and I would wait to see how brave I could be, how close he could get to my bed. And then I would scream like anything for my parents to come in the night to comfort me. 
So everything can seem darker. Everything can seem heightened in the dark. They were unskilled. They were no match for the Egyptians. In verse 7, he says, So he made ready his chariot, and he took his army with him. This is Pharaoh. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Now, for you war buffs in the room here, the Egyptian chariots were far superior to any other the surrounding nations. The surrounding nations built their chariots bulky, they were heavy, and they were used more for battering their enemy when they were in battle. The Egyptians were more strategic. They were lighter, the chariots were lighter, they could go faster, and they were equipped many times to have two people in a chariot, one to be the driver, another one to be the archer so they could pick off their enemies in battle. So this makes me wonder, why did Pharaoh think that he had to amass such a large army? I mean, after all, he wasn't chasing soldiers. He was chasing his servants, those that had been under, who had been oppressed and were more familiar with a whip than a weapon. It just makes me wonder. But scripture does say that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And you know, a hard heart can make us do some crazy things sometimes. When our hearts are hard, we, we're not all, always thinking quite straight. They also, their confidence was lacking. They felt more secure back in bondage. At the end of verse 12, they say to Moses, it would have been better it would have been better if you would have just left us in Egypt. And how many times have we said that? It would have been better if I wouldn't have made this decision. It would have been better if I decided not to do this. It would have been better if I had not made a choice to enter into this relationship. Whatever it is, how often have we said that? Said that wouldn't have been be would have been better. And then the K stands for they were knocked down. They were felt like literally they were going to be trampled to death by the Egyptians. As we've already, as I've already said, they were no match for Pharaoh's army. So I hope that helps to imagine putting ourselves in the story. And what I love about God's word, and I always pray, God, help me to put myself in this story so I can hear what you want to teach me in this story. So anyone in the house today ever felt like the Israelites at this point? You felt scared, your trust is shaken, you're unskilled, your confidence is lacking, and you feel like you're just going to be knocked out. Well, I have good news today for you because we have a God that is there, and he is here to deliver us. He promises his presence at all times. But it might look like something like this for you. Maybe you've had a dream of fulfilling a calling that God has whispered to you, and you wake up and you find yourself in the wilderness, and you think to yourself, I was following God one yes at a time. What happened? Did I make a mistake? Did I not hear him right? What am I supposed to be doing now? Why is this so hard? Or you might have some obstacles that keep you stuck, keep me stuck, like a life-altering circumstance that is totally out of your control, that you did not ask for. A difficult relationship, maybe that you've prayed and prayed and prayed, and it just doesn't seem to get any better. A health issue you didn't want. Most of us don't want a negative health issue, right? A financial issue, maybe internal fears, doubts, or distractions. 
You feel crushed and pressed, and you almost want to give up. And maybe you do want to give up because it just doesn't seem to be working. Well, the definition of stuck, here's the definition of stuck. It means unable to move or set in a particular position, place, or way of thinking. And this is exactly where the Israelites found themselves. They found themselves stuck in a, not only in a physical way, but they found themselves stuck in a way of thinking that they were doomed. And I bet if I could sit down with you and hear your story and I could share my story, we could go back and forth and share stories of when we have felt stuck just like this. But here's a key point that I want to make to us is that what we think about where we are, so what we think about the position or the place that we are has everything to do with our next steps. Our mindset has everything to do with what our next steps can be. If we believe that we are truly stuck and that there is no hope, then we're gonna, then we're gonna stay stuck if we don't believe there's hope. But if we believe that our stuckness, I don't know if that's a word, but it is today. <laughs> if we believe that our stuckness is temporary and that there is hope, then we will be able to take that next step. Now, I don't mean hope that everything's going to turn out exactly the way we want it to. That, you know, that our dream is going to come true or this relationship is going to turn over and be all good or whatever it might be. I mean we believe it's temporary, our stuckness, because our hope is not a false thing we can dream about. It's actually a person, Jesus Christ. Our hope is embodied in Jesus Christ. That's what we have as believers because he is someone who promises to be our deliverer. Now, we could look at this story from three different viewpoints. First of all, we could look at it from God's perspective. He was the one that was leading the Israelites. Or we could look at it from Pharaoh's perspective. He lost his personal commodities, his slaves, his servants, and he thought they were lost in the wilderness. Or we could look at it from Israel's point of view, and as a result of their coordinates that God gave them to go to, they were trapped. They were trapped between the Egyptians and the Red Sea. So we're going to look at it from God's perspective because I think that's the best way to look at it, from his word. So let me give you a few observations about this story, and I'm going to pull up a map here for you and just to kind of give you a little bit of a visual of what it looked like. Now, if you look at the left on the top, you can see to the left, that's where they came from, is from Egypt, and they were traveling. But now God said that that he were sending them to the promised land, but he wasn't going to take them through the shortcut. If you let your eye follow along the land around the, the top there from the left to the right, that would have been the shortcut. But God decided not to take him there, and this is what he said. So here's the first blank in your handout, is God intentionally led the people away from the shortest route. He intentionally led them away from the shortest route. And in chapter 13, verse 17, it says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Why? Because they were vulnerable. 
They had been captives. They were unskilled. They didn't have confidence. And honestly, I don't know how much they really knew God. They knew about him, but how much they could trust him. God had a plan, and it didn't fully make sense because God instructed Moses to turn back and camp facing the sea. That's what God told them. He actually told them to turn back. And again, he intentionally led them through the wilderness to the place that he wanted them to be. He had them exactly where he wanted them to be, even though they might not have felt like it. And you can see that on the map. If you look again, we'll bring that map up again. And the left, it says Etham. That's where they originally camped. And then God told them to turn back. And I would have to say, like, okay, why turn back? It would be like us going on vacation, camping. We did a lot of camping growing up, and we camped in Chelan. It would be like my dad saying, okay, you know, going near Chelan, and then saying, okay, but we're going to go back to Leavenworth first. And, and, and I would be saying, well, why are we going to do that, right? But that word turn, the Hebrew word for turn is the word shuv. And it means to go back to where you were before, not in some other direction. So when the Israelites turned back, they were actually passing three landmarks that they had already passed on their way to camp. So here's what God told them. God told them to camp in front of Piharothith and between Migdal. Now, Migdal wasn't a city, but it was a tower or a fortress that the Egyptians had Migdals placed in certain strategic places to guard their territory. And then God told them to camp in front or front of Baal Zephon facing the Red Sea facing the Red Sea. So here they were, facing the Red Sea, staring straight into the water. They could feel it. They could smell it. They could touch the sand between their, they could feel the sand between their toes. This is where they were. God had them exactly where he wanted them to be. There was no way open for them but through the Red Sea because before them was a sea and behind them were the Egyptians. And that could be very confusing. It could be very confusing. And when that happens to us, again, when I said we're following God one yes at a time and then God tells you to turn back or reverse course, that can be so frustrating. But remember, we are looking at this story from God's perspective. At this point... The Israelites had no reason to fear, so they were probably, okay, God changed his mind, we're, or not changed his mind, but he instructed us to camp in front of the Red Sea. We're going to have a little vacation here. Now, this is the thing that they didn't know. The Israelites did, had no idea that Pharaoh was going to change his mind. They had no idea that Pharaoh was back in his palace and saying, oh, snap, what was I thinking? He had no, they had no idea. They went out at like victory, like warriors with spoils of war, because scripture also says that the Egyptians wanted to get rid of them, so they gave them whatever they wanted because they were done with them. In verse 8 of chapter 14, because God knew the army was coming, it says, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. 
And in another translation, it says they marched out defiantly, but again, they had no idea what was going to happen. And here's one of the truths that I discovered when I was studying this story is, first of all, the Egyptian army was headed toward the Israelites, and they didn't know, but God did. So that's the first thing that God showed me. And the other thing is that I locked onto or latched onto the Holy Spirit revealed to me is that he brought them there purposely, intentionally, so he could show him his glory. And that's the same thing that happens with us. when We're frustrated and confused and we're not sure and we're in the wilderness. I want to tell you that God has you. He has me exactly where he wants us to be so he can show his power and his glory in our lives. He positioned them in the right place for God to do his miracle. They thought they were stuck, but God knew the starting point for them. So when we step out in faith in the middle of our mess, I encourage us to do that, but with one caveat. We step out from the scars of our mess and not necessarily the wounds of our pain. We might be carrying our wounds, but not allowing the pain to submerge us so deeply because when we do that, the pain can keep us to be stuck and actually to see God who he really are. Is. And then there are times that God asks us, as I shared, to reverse course so that he can work in and through us. And I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, and 8. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And here's the, the one key sentence I'd just love to throw out to you right now for us to remember. We don't need to know the outcome if we are following God. We want to, it makes us feel better, it makes me feel more comfortable if I know exactly what God's going to do. We don't need to know the outcome if we are following God one yes at a time. We only need to know the starting point of what he's asking us to do. There will never be a perfect time to take that first step, ever. There's never. It's not going to line up like we want it to. If we had time, I know all of us have stories in there how God, you know, we kind of zig this way, zag that way in our lives. But God is our way maker. He is our firm foundation, and he will do what he promises. So what do you do when you, your hands are clammy, you hear the noise of the enemy behind you, and you're just pushed up against the wall, and you're facing the Red Sea, and you see nothing, no way out? Well, here's the three steps I'm going to give you, okay? The first is to do it afraid. Do it afraid. How many of you have ever had to do something afraid? Okay, thank you. A few of you, that's good. I think most of us in this room could say we had to do something afraid. Well, I was at this camp up in Canada, and they claimed to have the world's, or not the world's, the um, North America's largest zip line, okay? Or longest zip line, not largest, longest zip line. So I'd been up there a few weekends before. Um, 
speaking at some women's retreats over a couple of years. I'd done that. And every time the women would say, Cynthia, are you going to go on the zip line? And I would say, ah, no, it's okay. I, I, you know, I got a message to prepare for tonight. You know, I'm not going to do that. It's okay. You go. I'm a big chicken. I don't like heights. I'm not very athletic. I like things I can be in control of, like walking, like bicycling, and all that. But I'm not really very athletic. So, and I had, I'm not very adventuresome in that. I like to pay my feet on the ground. So anyway, the weekend I was there, I was speaking at my own church, my own women's retreat. And so, of course, my women who know me say, Cynthia, aren't you going to go in the zip line? Come on. Your message will be fine. Come on. So in the morning, on Saturday morning, a young adult um, woman named Carolyn, she said to me, she said, Cynthia, would you go on the zip line with me? I'm really terrified, and I need to conquer my fear. So, you know, when you have someone who's more afraid or you think more afraid than you, that gives you courage. So I said, sure, I'd love to. Let's do that. And inside I'm going, I don't want to do this. But I felt like I needed to empower her. So anyway, we get up to the platform. First of all, that was a huge hike to get up there, and I was just like out of breath. Get up to the platform. There's these two sweet, young adult men, probably no more than 21 or 22. And I'm looking at them, and I'm thinking, do you know actually how to do these harnesses safely? Have you had enough training? So when I get nervous, I talk. I chatter. And so I said to the guy that was harnessing me up, and I said, can you ask, I'm going to ask you a question. And he goes, okay. I said, do you love your mother? <laughs> and he says, what? I said, do you love your mother? And he goes, well, yeah. And I said, how much do you love your mother? He goes, oh, she's awesome. I love my mother. I said, pretend I'm your mother then when you're harnessing me up. Because I have three boys when I get home that are going to want to see me in one piece. The Israelites probably felt in the, in the same way. Well, anyway, I made it off the zip line. Oh, I forgot to tell the last part. I stepped off the platform. I screamed the whole way. I put my arms out. I was flying. I cried, and I called my youngest son and told him what I did, and he couldn't even believe that I did it. He says, Mom, I need pictures. And I said, I'm bringing them home. <laughs> but the Israelites could much felt terrified as well. But they aren't the only ones in our, in our history, in the Bible history, that were terrified. When you think of Jacob was terrified to face his brother Esau. Elijah was terrified, chased by the wicked queen Jezebel after his victory on Mount Carmel. Gideon was terrified when he defeated the Midi before he defeated the Midianites. Esther was terrified when she had to approach her husband, the king, to save her people, the Jews. Mary was terrified when the angel of the Lord came to her and said she would be impregnated by the Holy Spirit. The disciples were terrified in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested and soon led to his death. And yes, Moses was terrified. He didn't want to talk to Pharaoh. In fact, he asked God if his brother could be his spokesperson. But God reminded all of them, and he reminds us, that he is the great I Am. And he says over and over again, there's 365 approximately verses that say, do not be afraid, one for every day of the year for us, so that we can remember that God is our great I am. So God said to them in their terror, in verse 13, he says, "Stand, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. 
The noise of the enemy was deafening to the Israelites. And Moses stood by the Red Sea with all these hordes of people, adrenaline rushing, not only hearing, but now seeing in the dim dark of the light, the Egyptians approaching. But here's what the Israelites had. They had God's presence. It says at the end of chapter 13 that God gave them a pillar of cloud to lead them by day and a pillar of fire at night. And in verse 19 of chapter 14, it says that there was an angel of God that moved from the front to the back with the pillar of cloud to stand between the enemy and the Egyptians. You see, God never asks us to take a step of faith when we are frightened or terrified to lead us in a direction that he does not promise his presence with us. And he will stand between you and me and stand between us and the enemy when we feel overwhelmed, when the enemy is whispering to us, you just need to give up. This doesn't work. This God stuff doesn't work. Don't pray. He doesn't care. All of that. But God promises his presence to help lead us and guide us. So we do it afraid, and then we do the next right thing. Doing the next right thing is remembering your stand in Jesus, remembering that you stand on a firm foundation, that I stand on a firm foundation because of Jesus. And when the Israelites had lodged their complaint to Moses, this is what God said through Moses to them. In verses 13 and 14, do not be afraid, there that is again, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again, meaning alive, because the next time they saw them was they washed up on the seashore on the other side. And I love this part, the Lord will fight for you, you need only be still. There's another story in the book of um, Kings and Chronicles of King Jehoshaphat, in Chronicles specifically, when he was facing these three huge armies, and he said, Lord, our eyes are on you, but we don't know what to do. And this is what God's response to him was through the prophet Jehazel. He said, you will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm. Do you notice the theme here, stand firm? <laughs> And see the deliverance of the Lord will give you. Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. The Lord will be with you. That isn't just for the Israelites or King Jehoshaphat or anybody we would read about in Scripture. That truth still holds for us today. So when we're in a hard place, when we're stuck in the darkness, we have Jesus because he's gone before us. He has made the way. He is our way maker. I love that song that says Jesus. He is the way maker. He will make a way for us in the hard seasons of our life. And he lights up our dark place. I love that it also says in Exodus in chapter 14 that when the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and the angel of the Lord, as God went with them, it lit up the night. It says that. And so when we're in a really, really dark place, God promises that he will light up the night for you. 
He will light up the night for me and give us courage. There was a missionary named Elizabeth Elliot who was married to her husband, Jim. And they were missionaries with four other couples in the jungles of Ecuador. And soon after they got there, the five husbands were murdered brutally by the Aka Indians of who they were trying to reach and bring the good news and gospel of Jesus Christ. So Elizabeth, when she was in the wilderness, in her suffering, she learned to do the next right thing. You would think she'd just want to go home after that. She had a small daughter, but she did the next right thing. What God told her to do was to stay there. And when she was betrayed later by a fellow missionary and had to leave the work she loved in the jungle, fulfilling her husband's dream, it didn't work, so she did the next right thing that God asked her to do. In some ways, it might have felt like God asked her to reverse course and to leave something that she loved. But here's what she said. She said, he leads us right on through, right up to the threshold of heaven. He does not say to us ever, here it is. He only says, here am I, fear not. In other words, it isn't about you and it isn't about me. It's about finding Jesus when we're stuck and letting him help us. Galatians 5.1 says this, it is for freedom that Christ has come to set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. In other words, the yoke of sin, the yoke of doubting who God is, and the, not the doubt necessarily is always a sin, but when we can't put our hands in his hands and know and believe, it's the sin of unbelief. And so what God is saying here to us, in other words, don't be tempted to go back to Egypt. God is going to come through and he's going to carry you. The last do, so we're going to do it afraid, we're going to do the next right thing, and the last thing we're going to do is, well, first, don't pray, do it now. Now, lest you think I'm a heretic, I totally believe in prayer. Prayer is powerful. We need to be prayers. We need to be men and women that are on our knees. But God is saying sometimes to do it now. Sometimes when he calls us and we have prayed, he expects our obedience. And this is what God said to uh, Moses to tell the people. He says, why are you crying out to me? Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Because God had already foreshadowed for them earlier of what was going to happen. He said, stop talking, stop praying, just move. And sometimes that's what we need to do. God said in Exodus 14, 4, this is what he said. He said, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Sometimes we hide behind prayer. What do I mean by that? Again, because we're just a little nervous. We want things to work out a certain way. We want things to line up. When God is saying, enough already. I've already told you what to do. You just need to move. So don't pray, just obey when God says go. 
We want to see that end picture, and I'm sure that the Israelites wanted to see their end. I'm sure they wanted to hear this first, what it says in verse 30 and 31. This is the outcome. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. There was an expositor preacher in the 19th century named Macintosh, and he actually believed that the Red Sea didn't open up all at once. He believed that it opened progressively as they took steps, one step at a time. And this is what he says. God never gives guidance for two steps at a time. I must take one step, and then I get light for the next. This keeps the heart in depending, dependence, abiding dependence upon God. And you know, last week Bob gave an incredible message on God being and Jesus are Alpha and Omega. And that's why we can do what we can do. That's why we can step in and out in faith because God is the Alpha and Omega. Jesus is the beginning and the end. He is the be at the beginning of our Red Sea and he is at the end of our Red Sea. I want to close with a, a story of something that happened to uh, us a, about a little over 10 years ago. We were in a very, very dark place. I was in probably the darkest place I've ever experienced in my life. My heart was bruised, shattered. My husband and I, Kevin, we were fighting fiercely for our marriage. And there were other things that were a part of that. It was, seemed like a perfect storm that was converging upon our lives at that moment. And I started to question, after being a believer for so many years, God, are you really even there? Do you really even care of the outcome? It was felt so dark. My heart was broken in a million pieces. And I just, I, I just remember being so, just so trapped like, why am I here, God? Why are we here? And I was in a worship service, and God gave me this picture as I was crying out to him. And he gave me, I don't always get these pictures, but he gave me a visual of the Red Sea opening and Jesus in the middle of the Red Sea holding my heart and motioning behind me to just follow him and that he was going to make a way through this hard place and he was going to take care of me and that I only needed to be still and let him fight the battle. And that's what I hung on, on to because that is our God. So I want to encourage you today to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Don't give up. Your God, he loves you so much. He loves me so much. Jesus loved us so much. We know this, that he went to the cross for us. He made a way for us. He is our high priest. He empathizes with our weakness, as it says in Hebrews 4.14. I'm going to read that. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as you are, as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need.
He is our firm foundation. He is the rock on which we stand, and we can trust him. Amen?